Hey, it's Pretty Little Grown Men. I'm David Greenwald. And I am Dom Nicola. This is episode 61. 61. We're in off-season mode. Yes. Although, uh, next week, Game of Thrones is back. Yes. We- I mean, if you... Which we're going to... We're, we're <laughs> I really want to watch it, even though yeah. last season was such a, a rigmarole. Yeah. I mean, if you do the... Uh, Previously, on Pretty Little Grown Men, uh, I was so fed up <laughs> with that show and yeah. just never wanted to watch it again. Hear, hear Dave and Dom bitch about Game of Thrones. But now I'm excited to have it again. <laughs> of course, right? So we'll see. I don't know. Time heals all wounds. Well, you know, it is the first season that is completely apart from the books. Right. That's, um, that's exciting. And it's looking increasingly like George R. R. Martin is never going to finish. Um, he's, he's publicly come out and said that, uh, he's, Writing he's is hard. Yeah, I know. He's, he's, he's such a, no, what, he's, did, what did he say? I didn't actually read it. Well, basically that, yeah, yeah. that he, uh, that he ambitiously set a deadline with his publishers that he never hit and that that deadline kept getting pushed back and he kept never hitting that deadline. And eventually I think that he's had a stalemate with his publishers right now where they just don't expect it. You know, I think he's such a his his property is such a hot commodity that they're not pushing him. Um, but he he has basically admitted that he does not know when it's going to be done and to not expect it anytime soon. I think that he has reached a point where he is coming to terms with the fact that he's run out. Um, yeah. I think that he's one of those guys who was incredible. I mean. Most people don't know that George R. R. Martin is an incredibly prolific writer, and he has a lot, a lot of other books and stories than just Game of Thrones. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, he has three novellas uh, uh, that are about. Um, they're called. They're like the the Adventures of Duncan Egg, um, Duncan something or other, a knight. I haven't read them, but I know they're about. Uh, Duncan something or other, who's a knight, and uh, Aegon Tar- Targaryen, oh, okay. who shows up in Game of Thrones later, right? Um, who becomes a meister. Uh, he, uh, Aegon was supposed to be the next king. He right. was the runner-up to be king. Right, and then he goes to the, he takes the black. Yeah, there's a point, I don't know if this is in the series, but there's a point in the books where <clears throat> uh, uh, Aegon talks about... Um, his friend Dunk and like about all the fun times they had and that they were such good friends. Um, <clears throat> but uh, those are like side novellas and I think he's written three of them and he's okay. playing, he wants to write more, but it's just like, dude, you just keep put like, just keep like fucking putting off right the thing that everyone wants you to do, which is to write <clears throat> at least another Game of Thrones book. If not, the, I mean, he said there's supposed to be like two more Game of Thrones books uh, but he can't even finish. Well, I mean, who one. knows, right? I mean, what what I don't understand about this creatively is like when you see people get stuck, and I'm sure a lot of people get stuck under way less public circumstances where there's not 
millions of people clamoring for somebody to finish the work, you know, right. but it seems like people, you know, it's your first thing or you've done your first thing and then you don't know what to do because you spent all that time building up to that. Yeah. And once that comes out, then you're trapped, you know, and it seems like the second project is hard for whether it's a book or music or whatever. It seems like that can be really hard for people uh, or you have to rush it or whatever. Um, but for someone of his stature, who's completed books so many times, mm-hmm. It does seem really uh, bad. It seems, <laughs> it seems really just nerve wracking that he's at he's at this point in his career and he's not he doesn't have a process that lets him just zip through it. You know, right. I mean, Stephen King puts out like a five million page book every year. I'm not saying every single one of them is good, but he finishes the, he finishes the book. You know, you can expect a new Stephen King story to come out. Well, I, it almost seems like Stephen King is this brand of writer who has transcended critical response. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that he's gotten to the point where he doesn't even read reviews of his stuff because he doesn't have to, and he probably doesn't give a shit. Right. Um, I, I want to say I think he's a fantastic writer, by the way. Oh, I agree. I, I think that uh, it's been probably two decades since I've read a Stephen King book. Oh, man. You should read some. Um, but I mean, I respect his storytelling capabilities because yeah. I've seen adaptations, which regardless of the the quality of the adaptation, the story behind it is incredibly well crafted. Um, but I think George R. R. Martin might be that kind of person who found Stephen King levels of success late in his career after right. he had done so much already and is feeling that pressure. You know, because I think that for so much of of Game of Thrones, the TV show's run, he could participate in writing episodes. Not only because he uh, has worked in TV before, um, he he wrote uh, notoriously wrote episodes. Um, I don't think he was a showrunner, but he's a writer on staff for Beauty and the Beast which had Linda Hamilton and Ron oh, Perlman. Okay. Ron Perlman as the titular beast and Linda Hamilton as the titular beauty. Uh, beauty and the Beast set in, in modern New York. Well, modern as in late 80s, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so he's, he's familiar with TV and he knows how that works. I just don't think that he knows how fame works. And I don't think he knows how uh, pressure works because it's obvious that the pressure is getting to him to the point where... It's. I think it's incredibly stultifying for him, and he can't work around it. Yeah. Um, I and- I do think with this season coming up, beyond the separation from the books, which sort of liberates them to go in different directions, mm-hmm. potentially interesting directions, I do think that they got a ton of criticism last season that happened very noisily and publicly, and it seemed like they heard it and responded to it and maybe may or may not have taken it to heart but you know it's one thing for them to hear something halfway through the season when they're already kind of yeah it's already everything's done mm-hmm. you know um versus for them to be able to go into a new season having absorbed that kind of response uh so it would be nice if this season is not like a, a misogynist trash heap yeah it's it's funny because all reports from this new season, and I don't think it's the same situation last season where like three episodes leaked online, and so everybody everybody had seen them before it actually premiered. Right. But I, all all signs are pointing to, and in, in, in fact, the showrunners are admitting to this season being their 
quote unquote most brutal yet. Oh, um, which, well, okay. Which you know, that, and that's and that's something we've talked about before, and I'm, it's something I'm sure that we'll talk about more. Which is that there there comes a point with with a show like Game of Thrones where you wonder how far they're willing to go to shock and surprise, and is it worth it? Is it in? Is it is it as indelible to the story as it should be? Um, are they going to be able to pull it off, or is it just going to get even more trashy? I don't know. I've always felt like the stuff that they the stuff that they used that departs from the novels or the way that you could tell the show departed from the novels has never been my most, my favorite parts of the show. And so I'm curious to see a whole season that's based purely on the storytelling talents of, of the staff. No. Yeah. And on whatever outline that George gave them. Well, actually, I don't know because I think that he, I've read, I've read, I've read interviews and heard interviews where they've talked about how they started doing the show in the first place, which is that they went to George R. R. Martin. They met with him. He had been approached by other teams, other networks, and he, he was adamant about getting the impression of how he was going to end the series from the people who wanted to adapt it. And that, uh, um, the two showrunners, I forget, David Benioff and David Benioff and DB Weiss, they they told him what they where they thought that the series was going, and he was so convinced by their explanation that he was like, "Okay, you guys can do it." Mm-hmm. And uh, so I would imagine that he has an idea of where he wants to take it, but that that's that's all it is is it's just an idea, right? Well, the thing that I had read is that he. You know, given that he is like an older guy, uh, he had given them some kind of instructions, mm-hmm. some an outline okay. of how he wanted things to wrap up in case, yeah. you know, he had a heart attack before the book comes out. Yeah, which is, I mean, who knows? The book, there, I think we all need to accept the fact that there is a possibility that this series will never get finished in his books, that right. he will never write the end of these books. How interesting would that be if you had someone start a book series and it was adapted and then the only definitive conclusion is in the TV show. I don't think that's ever happened. No, that would be really nuts. Um, so I'm curious. You know, it's. I think there's a lot of situations where uh, intellectual properties and, and popular characters have been uh, taken up. The mantle has been taken up by other writers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's uh, James Bond is a, like some new James Bond novels have come out. Um, uh, I, I, uh, Douglas Adams, who did the Hitchhiker's Guide series, yeah, he also did a series called uh, by There's a uh, a private detective named Dirk Dirk Gently. Yes, um, I think he wrote two novels, Dirk, two Dirk Dirk Gently novels, and someone else took took it up after Douglas Adams died and, and right. wrote another novel. There's new Dune books. There's new Dune books. They're really terrible. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, so it happens, you know, um, but I, I don't know. It's it's crazy because it's just like this guy is still alive, yeah. And, but yet he can't find it in himself to finish, to finish yeah. his books. Well, it, it's an interesting situation. Um, I think with TV shows, you get so you invest so much time into them, and it becomes like the money pit, you know, that the, like the Tom Hanks movie where you 
have spent so much, you have to just keep dumping in, you know, you can't quit on it, even if it's become unwatchable or unpleasant or mm-hmm. whatever. And there's really only been a few shows where I got pretty deep into and felt like I was breaking up with. One was The Office, uh, even mm. before the Michael Scott character leaves, it had Uh-oh. just become so tedious and repetitive. Now it was maybe season five or six. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I didn't watch the season of girls, although oh, I've, yeah. I've read a lot of reviews and it sounds like it was pretty good. So maybe when it wraps up, or I think it just finished actually. Um, yeah, it just ended. Maybe I'll sit down and try and watch it. I watched the first two episodes and I, I mean, I've never been a huge girls fan, so I don't I'm really not much to comment on it. Yeah. I really, really disliked the last season. Yeah, it was it was really bad, which is why I didn't want to keep going. I feel like it's becoming a parody. Uh, it's becoming a parody of itself, which I was all yeah, it that's that's all. That's really that's my well, only comment. Is know, I feel like it's becoming it's like it's like Lena Dunham reading every single review that she's ever had written about her show and adapting her show around either proving those reviews wrong or bucking against them in a really uh, abrasive way. Right. I think the thing that was has been interesting to me about it is it started with this real cachet of this person who made a pretty thoughtful indie film and, you know, Judd Apatow coming on to work on it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it just seemed like it was going to be on another level. And I think the first season really is. And then about half of the second season is good. And, you know, it's been very inconsistent to me ever since. And it's interesting that it, I feel like it really fell into the same traps of any sort of teen drama, like the OC or gossip girl or whatever, where everybody sleeps with each other. Everyone, none of the characters really grow up in any substantial way. Um, you know, it just becomes sort of like this, this, soap opera loop of all the, of like fake drama, you know, and there's some of that on pretty little liars to an extent. Right. Although they've done a better job of not having like five different boyfriends, like not having the same people hook up with everyone. And that's what made this last season. So interesting of having these new, some of these new relationships, right. Cause it, it, people hadn't been like cycled through the whole group of the liars. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean with girls, it's just like, well, okay. It's just like, very fancy, uh, highbrow gossip girl. Mm. And, but like less interesting somehow, you know, yeah. but yeah, I don't know. I'll sit down and try and watch some of this season and see what I think. Yeah. You'll probably get it through pretty quickly. Um, I, I, Rebecca wants to watch it, so I'll probably continue at a very slow pace. Um, so we're here today to talk about, I think, something that's n- relatively new in the world of Pretty Little Grown Men, which is a movie that Dave and I have watched that we disagree very, uh, we we disagree highly about it. Yes. We haven't, now, the, the funny thing is we have not talked about why we disagree so much other than the fact that we disagree. Right. We're going to get into it. Well, so we just, I, Hillary and I just saw the movie uh, at the cheap theater over yeah. the weekend. And I should say, I, you know, Charlie Kaufman's probably my favorite. Screenplay. Well, we're talking about, we haven't even mentioned, we're oh, talking okay. about the movie called Anomalisa. So this is a movie that came out um, in wide release uh, maybe about two months ago, a month or two ago. 
Um, it was nominated for an Oscar in the animated car- category, which is always a strange category because I feel like you're basically putting adult movies against kid movies, and it's so hard to measure the merits of each against each other. I mean, you oh, you're you're always going to have a Pixar movie in there because Pixar pretty much turns out a movie per year. Um, so undoubtedly, uh, I bet, I bet this right now and I will put lots of money down. I'll put, um, whatever on the fact that, uh, Finding Dory is going to be nominated for an Oscar. Of course. Next year. Of course. Yeah, of course it will. Yeah. Because it's a Pixar movie. And because, and Pixar, they make great movies. They do. They do make great movies. The only reason that, uh, Good Dinosaur did not get nominated is because uh, Inside Out came out at the right. s- in the same year. And that was mostly just like the fact that Good Dinosaur was in development hell for a little while. Um, and also Inside Out is a perfect classic, which should have won Best Picture. Inside Out is a great movie. Um, but it's up against uh, it's up against Anomalisa. It was up against Anomalisa, which is it's night and day between those two movies. Right. Um, and well, I, I think Inside Out actually painted a much richer and accurate portrait of the human spirit and <laughs> and of what it's like to be a person than this horrible horrible okay hold on hold on before we talk about anomalisa i do want to mention another uh best animated feature nominee uh that i don't think anybody saw but i I loved and I think was a better movie than Inside Out and Anomalisa, which is called Boy in the World. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a Brazilian movie. It was a surprise that it was even nominated at all. It is a fantastic fucking movie. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. The animation in it is just stunning. It's almost it's it's pretty much a silent film. Uh, the sound design is incredible. If you have the chance to see Boy in the World, go and see it. Um, that's all I really have to say. Nice. It's a very impressionistic, but a very childlike movie. It's 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 a childlike. It's it's a movie about industry and bureaucracy and urbanization and the destruction of the environment and uh, basically how our world is being overtaken by mediocrity, set to a very impressionistic palette from the perspective of a tiny child. Nice. It's a beautiful movie, and that it should have won. It was a surprise that it was even nominated at all. Um, but uh, Inside Out is a good movie, and it deserved to, to win anyway. Yeah. Um, okay, so Anomalisa. Uh, so Dave hated that movie, and I really liked that movie a lot. Yeah. Um, we haven't, uh, yeah, we haven't talked about why. Um, we just texted about it pretty briefly. I, I sort of briefly said like kind of why I liked it, um, but why, why don't you tell me, Dave, what you, what you think? Sure. Well, so yeah, I want to say I think Charlie Kaufman is really a genius. I think he's probably my favorite screenwriter. I thought uh, Synecdoche, New York, was really just an unbelievable, yeah, it's ambitious a great movie. movie. Yeah. Um, I saw his play. Hopefully, it's the theater mm. uh, in L.A. and thought that was terrific and clever and. What, what he, is that? What is that play about? I've no, I don't know anything about it. It's it's very meta, like all of his works, and it's about the actress Hope Davis leaving this play within a play. You know, I it's like I don't actually remember now because it was probably about eight ten years ago mm-hmm. when I saw it. Um, but it was you know like all of his 
works. It's very layered and self-aware and reflexive and um, using that as a means to address the human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, the way we like Synecdoche, New York is about a guy who is running this ongoing play around his life essentially with actors mimicking his own life and they come up with a mind of their own. And so it's all these, you know, I think the things he gets at are themes of, uh, control and, um, how we see ourselves and how we exist in relation to other people. Um, I mean that, that movie, of course, and adaptation both have Mm -hmm. both play into ideas of, uh, creation and depiction of yourself or depiction of your ideas versus what you actually are, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so pretty creatively rich work, right? Uh, Anomalisa, I thought, was his least clever, his most flat work, I think. So this is a movie with puppets, stop-motion animation. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very well done. It was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Very impressed by it. Um, but I think the, the the twist or the gimmick of the movie, the layer the second layer of the movie is that essentially it's a movie about um, how we've all become uh, consumerist drones, consumerist puppets. And okay, well let's put that into Let's make an actual puppet movie about that Mm -hmm. so that the irony, so so that the symbolism becomes incredibly clear, Mm -hmm. you know, and okay, well that's not that clever. You know, mm-hmm. and I think so many things that happen in this movie think they're very clever, but in fact, are not at all. Okay. Um, and so, within this sort of setup of these dolls who are consumerist puppets, uh, you have this main character who thinks that he's different. He thinks that he's special, and he encounters this woman Lisa, who he also thinks is special, right? And well, in, in his eyes, she's literally in, in, in the in the in the eyes of the audience, she's literally special because she's the only one who doesn't appear as the other as everyone else appears. Well, she has a different voice and, and everyone a different else face too. And yeah, and yeah. Ev- but every the voice is the thing that he's drawn to, and everyone else in the movie has the same voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean that's a clever thing. Mm-hmm. And there are all these you know clearly clever, intelligent touches, but ultimately it becomes this movie about this guy who. It's another domestic drama about the angst of a middle class or, in this case, a successful white person, Mm -hmm. white male, who's like, oh, the world is so terrible and everyone's against me and I need to solve my problems with sex and alcohol Mm -hmm. and this other person, you know. And I didn't think nothing in in the movie transcends any of the cliches of that. Mm -hmm. It, It breaks no new ground. It doesn't pursue those things in a particularly interesting or compelling way. Yeah. It's just a movie about this sad white guy, which is sort of given the edge of being a puppet movie mm-hmm. and having this sort of consumerist backdrop, but you get to the end of the movie and he essentially learns, well, I'm just an asshole like everybody else. You yeah. know, I'm not that special and I'm trapped in this situation and da 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 da. And so the it the movie just like comes to no conclusions. I felt like it was pretty sexist in the way it depicts like this guy taking advantage of this woman. Mm-hmm. I just didn't see what was, what the point of it was. Um, so I think that, so the first thing I want to say is that I can, I don't know if it's sexist because the person who, 
Um, I mean, th- there's, there's, this is spoilers. So just spoiler alert, but not really. It's not like the movie has like a big surprise. But no, there are no surprises. So, but the last, the last, the last. So yeah, go ahead. okay. So I will say that I didn't. It's, it's. I think that we were looking at the movie differently because I saw it as. Um, and it's hard for me to speak from this perspective because I don't have this perspective, and I'm glad that I don't. Uh, I'm very thankful of that fact. But it, to me, it seemed like it was a movie about, and you could say this probably for any of Kaufman's movies, it's a movie about the solipsism of depression mm. and how being depressed is something that is that you don't realize is going on until you're depressed. and But then depression sort of removes self-awareness from it Mm. from your perspective where you don't realize how selfish you are you don't realize that depression is actually like a a a very self-absorbing way to be um which is again i nothing against people who are legitimately clinically depressed that's a very terrible thing and i don't know what that's like but this movie seemed to me to be that uh, be an expression of that because the movie is all from his perspective. Yes. And the idea is that yes, everyone has the same voice. Um uh, the same voice actor plays everyone in the movie except for the main character and except for Lisa, uh the woman that he sort of becomes infatuated with one night. Everyone has the same voice and everyone has the uh, and the voice actor is named Tom Noonan, and ev- and everyone has the same face, mm-hmm. just with different like wigs and bodies, which is I think really, uh, really, to use that idea, and then to sort of extend into this idea of puppets, I think is really cool because, um, modern animation operates under this idea of expediency based on interchangeableness of, of characters. And I think the, the prototype of that is South Park, which you can, which, you know, notoriously they can make an episode of South Park in a week and they can do that because animation is such a, is they, they use animation in such a way as all they have to do is pick eyes, body, like it's all ready to go. And that's almost the same way with these puppets. But then to add a layer of hyper-realism on top of it, uh, which the the meticulousness of the realism in this movie, I think, is astounding. The way that they will take a sort of mid-level nice hotel in a place like, I think it takes place in Cincinnati, I think. Yeah, yeah. In a place like Cincinnati, which is just sort of like a middle America, like a, like a relatively prosperous middle America city in Ohio, like... Nothing happens in Cincinnati. They have a they have a baseball team. That's basically it. Um, to to have that idea to vi- be visually represented in that way, I think is is pretty impressive. But the what what eventually I think starts as a gimmick, I think becomes more and more ingrained in in this character and how he views the world, which is that. Yeah, he thinks that he is a great and special person, and he's really just like an alcoholic piece of shit. Right. Uh, well, the thing that okay, so the thing that I thought was really promising, and where I thought the movie was going, and then it didn't, which frustrated me. You have that scene where his jaw is kind of jittering, and he mm-hmm. there's another shot where he is like pulling at the side of his face because he has like you know his face is like attached in these sections 
and he's going to open his face up. Oh, every, it should be noted that every character in the movie, you can you can see the seams in their face. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so he's like pulling at it and then he stops, you know, and he later on the, in the movie, he goes downstairs. He's called downstairs to go speak to the hotel manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes this sort of panicky situation. Uh, he runs into something and smashes off the chunk of his face and he looks at it and he's kind of freaking out. And I was like, okay, this is where the movie really enters the next layer where it kind of does what happened, the the, like twist of adaptation and like becomes the other person's script essentially, you know, and the, the cleverness really becomes obvious. And this movie didn't, that ended up being a dream sequence. And then it doesn't go back to that. There is no escape, which is like, I think the message that you, you, Everything is not fake. You just are what you are, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a fine message, but it was a message that I found, you know, very predictable and uninteresting. Yeah, I think that. Um, so, so I'll say two things. One is that you know that after that dream sequence, so he has that dream sequence after he has a one night stand with Lisa, who he meets. All the movie takes place over the course of a night, and. Um, he he becomes infatuated with this woman who literally looks like no one else. And so it's sort of his brain zeroing in on sort of her I mean the whole the whole title of the movie, Anomalisa, is is based on that idea that she's special, that she's something some that something and someone That she's an been, anomaly. Yeah, that she's an anomaly. Uh which is very it's very sexist because he is projecting all of his needs as a married middle-aged man on her to basically save save him from the brink of of total depression right and it's a total power dynamic issue where you have this guy who she's come to the conference to see him speak he's this very successful businessman and she's starstruck writer yeah she's starstruck she hasn't been in a relationship in eight years she has this scar on her face that she's sensitive about mm-hmm. you know hasn't slept with anyone in years and he comes in. He's like, "No, we're you're great. Let's go." Yeah, you know. Yeah. So it's it's completely like it's a, it's this it's this stereotype of this woman who doesn't really have a lot of agency, who gets taken advantage of, and then he gets bored of her. Essentially, mm-hmm. her voice. This I mean, this was a clever thing of her voice starting to merge into the voice of everyone else. Well, after he has this like hallucinatory dream sequence, he wakes up and he's having breakfast with her, and they're t- and he's basically talking about how he's going to leave his his wife and his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she starts talking about it in a realistic way, and he becomes sort of. Uh, distracted by the way that she chews food. Yeah, he starts becoming annoyed with her. Yeah. The magic disappears, and it becomes like domestic uh, banality. And then she turns into... And then she basically transforms during this breakfast into every other character in the movie. She has. She then like starts to have the same voice, and then she her face changes, and she looks like everybody else in the movie. So it's basically like him once again becoming desensitized to his sort of like drunken reverie from the night before. Right. Um, which, and which I thought, I thought that was a great sequence. Yeah. But then he just goes home and he, he sees his family and they've surprised him for a party or his birthday or, or it's not really clear what, what it is, but there's mm-hmm. a surprise party. He just like, doesn't want to deal with it and hates everyone. And, you know, just sits down and is despondent. And so there's no, growth for him there's no arc he doesn't learn anything 
And, you know, I guess I just don't like movies where shitty people don't get better, you know, where they they just wallow. I'm just not interested in that as a form of storytelling. So I guess, you know, it's... um, So, yeah. So the end of the movie is basically, like... The end of the movie is sort of the the revelation that he is a severely depressed person who basically hallucinates. Who, like, his brain is so... His brain is in such a way that... Because the last the last view of the movie is Lisa in the car with her friend, and they both have like human faces. You know, they don't they don't look like the way that he viewed them to look, and they're fine. Which is why I kind of feel like I don't. I, I guess I didn't pick up as much misogyny out of it because the characters in the end who are okay are are the are the women who he supposedly mistreated. Right. So I guess I didn't necessarily see that misogyny because I also feel like the hate in the movie is directed towards the main character by himself. Right. Well, it's, it's just more that, you know, this is a story about this white guy who essentially gets everything he wants Mm -hmm. and it's not good enough. Yeah. Well, see, that's, so that's, I think that that's, that's probably where you and I might agree, which is where I'm trying to think of the message of the movie. Right. And well, I think your depression reading of it is really good. And I hadn't thought of that at all. Um, I think that's a super, interesting way to think about it what i thought it was the thing that i thought was really clear beyond the relationship issues was the the ideas about like so he's this customer service guy and he wrote this book on customer service Mm -hmm. and it's supposed to be ironic because he goes to give this speech about ways to connect and view people as individuals and of course he's unable to himself yeah that part felt a little too on the nose for me i'll be honest yeah the when he gives a big speech at the end which is i think well written but it's it's too on the nose it's just kind of like obviously he's giving this speech that's totally fake like obviously this is all faked Right. I mean, maybe I've read too many. I mean, I've, I've, when I was working at that startup, I, I read enough like businessy books to like know that this is all just fucking bullshit anyway. Like, oh sure, no well, one that, actually feels th- this way. That, but that, yeah, the the speech that he gave felt very authentic in the sense that it's all these common sense things that somehow you need you people are willing to pay for in the form of a self-help book or a lecture or whatever, just to hear somebody affirm them. Right. Right. You know, and I think there can be a power in that. I think also there's the trap of reading 10 of these books and not actually progressing Mm -hmm. with your life. Yeah. Um, But the other thing I noticed in the very beginning of the movie, he talks to his kid on the phone, he talks to his wife and the kid asks if he's bought anything. And the first thing he does is he gets he gets off the plane, gets in the town. He asks the cab driver, where can I find a toy shop? Yeah. Because there's this expectation that he's going to buy his kid a toy. And so that's his utility to his child, to his son, yeah. is that he's going to be a consumer of goods. Mm-hmm. You know. So I felt like the whole movie was trying to make a comment about how capitalism turns us into drones or whatever. Mm. But... I don't think it really reached a strong conclusion on that either because he gets home and he brought his kid this weird toy and he just sits there staring at it. And I don't know what the takeaway is. I don't know like what the message is or, or if we're supposed to think like, Oh, well he's just kind of an asshole and his wife's right. And da da da. Because I think there is like, it is a real concern that consumerism and capitalism like have a lot of negative consequences and, Mm -hmm. Uh, are melting our brains and all of these things. And I don't feel like the movie was able to make that in a clear way. I mean, in part because it spent all this time on the like romantic drama and the infidelity and like 
the weirdness of the dream sequence. And so it pulled, I don't know, it felt, it felt like it had like several different ideas as opposed to one idea with like three layers, which is what you usually get out yeah. of a Kaufman movie. I mean, I think that's, a, that's, I, that's, I think that's a, you know, I think it's a layer that I didn't read into it that makes a lot of sense, which is the depersonalization of the consumer, um, which I think is a, it's a good idea. And I would agree that, you know, that doesn't really find any sort of resolution or conclusion in, by the end of the movie. The one thing though, that I'm thinking about now is, you know, by the end of the movie, uh, the main character it's it's hard to say whether he's actually learned anything because he's had it's he's probably had what would amount to a psychotic break mm-hmm. but um because the speech that he gives is obviously just a fucking total mess he right. sort of like loses it in the middle of it because because of course he does that's how that's how movies work but um he doesn't really learn anything besides maybe that he needs a lot of help by the end of it uh, which is, isn't really expressed. It's just more intuitive than anything. But then I think about all the other Kaufman characters, even going back as far as um, uh, being John Malkovich, which is a, which is one of my favorite movies. I love that movie so much. But mm-hmm. by the end of it, Craig is stuck inside of the, the brain of the offspring of Catherine Keener and Cameron Diaz, and he's just stuck there, and he has to just wait there, and he's basically just trapped by his longing and he's still at the end of the movie the last shot is him inside is from his perspective inside of the perspective of of this little girl yeah and he's just like look away look away look away look away because he can't bear to see the his his ex-wife and the the object of his affection together right and that's where that that's where john cusack's character ends and it's like, it ends. Does he learn anything besides the fact that he learns that he fucked up? Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of adaptation, does does Nicholas Cage learn anything besides the fact that he's like a self self absorbed crazy person? I don't remember how, even how that movie ends. I think he kind of does because after his brother dies, and his brother is the one who wants to do all of the like sort of traditional screenwriting big third act climax stuff. Mm -hmm. His brother gets killed and then the movie becomes that. Oh yeah, that's right. And so there is a shift and there is like, I mean, maybe, you know, some people would probably say it's like too clever for its own good, you know, but there is this shift into like him because his brother, him respecting his brother in this new way and sort of living out his brother's hopes. Yeah. You know, so there is this like familial connection that comes out of making these, um, self-aware cliched choices yeah and um how does i've never seen uh i think it's called human nature the one that michelle gondry directed which is which is a lot of people consider is like not oh yeah i haven't seen that the one best kaufman but um how does synecdoche do new york and i'm trying to remember like i know it gets like in crazy or basically like he's he's basically like built a whole city of his yeah own neuroses essentially right yeah and i don't i don't remember the ending it's a very long complicated movie but essentially the message of that is about like the i mean it's sort of similar to this movie in that it's sort of about not living your life and not being like not being willing to live your own life 
versus letting it play out, you know, mm-hmm. letting other people play it out or whatever. Um, and so this movie becomes this guy who's trying to save his life and he can't understand his own, he doesn't understand his own nature. He doesn't understand his, why this breakup with this woman 10 years ago who yeah. haunts him through the first chunk of the movie. He doesn't understand why that didn't work. He, he called when he calls her and they are going back, they're interacting in the bar. He can't figure it out. He just wants to like, he thinks he's going to sleep with her again. Right. But. And he just wants to sort of absolve everything into, yeah. uh, into sex or alcohol or just like pure feeling, you Mm -hmm. know, pure sensual activity. And he doesn't really, I don't feel like the show, like it had this, like it has the same message of here's what, here's what you did wrong. Yeah. You know, or here's, I don't know. I just, I, I thought the dream sequence was really interesting. And I thought that was where the movie was going to like take off and explode into this whole other thing that really radically shifted what we had seen before. Mm-hmm. And it really doesn't do that. I guess, and you that's, know, I guess that's where maybe, you know, because his other movies had set kind of a precedent for that, yeah. you know, I was expecting it to be weirder. And since it wasn't that weird, it just was, you know, stop motion animation. I felt like that was a crutch, like that very difficult, admittedly difficult artistic decision was done. And then like the work of actually making the story, clever or mm-hmm. nuanced uh didn't really happen yeah i think that like it's it's weird because the if you if you think of making this movie without stop motion animation i think it'd be a pretty interesting movie because you'd have to you'd have to pull off the whole idea that everyone is the same person it'd almost be a funny it'd probably be a lot funnier because you'd have one actor playing everybody else Right, or everyone wearing the same wig or whatever. Right, um, and we can get into what I think the the puppetry of it does for this idea of uh, the uncanny valley, but um, I do think that w- what I what I drew from this movie more clearly than I've drawn from any of other Kaufman's other movies, and I'd say that I like I like being John Malkovich, and I haven't seen an adaptation in a long time, but I probably like adaptation a little more. An Eternal Sunshine. Oh, that's right, Eternal Sunshine. So okay, so every coffin movie is about. Uh, I think that it maybe comes down to the selfishness of perspective, and how you that in order to be a a, a truly functional loving human being you need to find a way outside of yourself Mm -hmm. and that most people can't do it and then i think that probably charlie kaufman would admit that he can't do it himself um and this is like you know i mean this is one of the struggles of depression yeah right is that you feel like you are isolated right 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 exactly and i and he'd probably say uh he'd probably say that um he is. He, I mean, sure. I'm sure he's been depressed, and if he's not currently depressed, who knows? He's a very private person. So, um, but I think that that this movie, more than any of his other movies, very clearly showed that you have to get over your depression and your, or you have to get over the self-absorption part of your depression. Depression is is something that a lot of people can't get over, and that's because their brains aren't aren't wired that way. But that the only way out of depression is to realize that your problems are only your own; mm-hmm. that they don't 
that they that it isn't the whole world and it's almost like overcoming self-absorption because at the end of the movie pretty much everyone but him is fine especially the person that he supposedly like ruined and he and i think that like he at the very end of the movie he's sort of like overcome with this pall of melancholy over the fact that he treated someone like the way that he did uh-huh. but the last shot of the movie is lisa just totally fucking fine yeah, grateful for the for the experience. Yeah, and she and her her letter is basically just like, I hope that you're okay. Like, thanks for spending the night with me. That was really nice, you know. And he sees her as this like broken, like warm person who's never met before, who he can like complete. I think, mm-hmm. and but she's not like that at all. She's like totally fine. She's just like, okay, well that didn't work out. Okay, I'll move on with my life, you know. And that's the last shot of the movie. That's the last feeling that you get in the movie. I think is that that. Oh, she's okay. It's really just him. Right. But it's it's pretty clear from the whole movie that it's just him. I guess. I guess. To me, but to me it was. But you're, I've, I, maybe because I was so sucked in by his perspective, which uh-huh. is so oppressive. Uh-huh. He's such an... Because the, the detail in this movie is almost oppressive in how real it feels. Yeah. Where the the thing that seems the least the least real part of this movie is is the sort of magical realism of the fact that everyone is looks the same and has the same voice. Right. You know. Right. And the part where he smashes his face off and stuff. Right. And then the yeah, and then you like see that he's like yeah, and then he like has this like hallucination about like being a robot. Which actually it's funny because I was thinking about the Uncanny Valley. I didn't even think about this idea that he has a dream that everyone's a robot. Right. You know. Well, yeah. Talk. Let's talk about that because you wrote this piece for for Kill Screen. For Kill Screen. Uh, yeah. Which I should have read before we talked about it. No, that's okay. Um, but what were your ideas there, and how do they come to Anomalisa? Uh, so, um, so I like like most pieces for for Kill Screen. I was approached with an idea. And uh, I, it happened to be a really good idea. And the idea was essentially um, looking at the Uncanny Valley uh, through film and uh, sort of seeing where we are as far as technology goes. Um, if, if we're still in the Uncanny Valley, if we're, if we're somewhere out of it or where we are. And the Uncanny Valley, for just like super armchair explanation is as as human beings are able to create uh, simulacrums of humans, there comes a point at which our creations are so similar to ourselves, but they're not quite similar that our brains can't deal with it. Right, and we become basically repulsed, and the uncanny the the valley itself refers to literally a on an x y graph mm-hmm. a literal like severe dip in the graph, so if you have on the y axis uh our our response, whether it's positive or negative, and on the x axis you have uh from zero to uh, whatever the the end of the x axis x axis 
you have similarities to ourselves Mm -hmm. where the end of the X X axis is basically indistinguishable from human. Mm -hmm. So it might as well be human. Mm -hmm. Um, So at at zero, you have, I don't know, a stick, a stick figure that a kid drew, you know? And it's like, our brain is like, Oh, that's a stick figure. That's cute. There's nothing in our brain. That's like, Oh, that's so close to human. That weirds me out. But the closer you get to, similarities to human beings you're you 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 respond positively and more positively and more positively until there's a point at which your brain is just like fuck this right i can't this is this is just an idea it's just a concept right it hasn't come from scientific testing or something like that no i think that the closest that we've ever gotten to um to scientifically testing this uh, is this idea of the Turing test, which is uh, Alan Turing, who was portrayed by Benedict Cumberbatch in The Imitation Game, uh, the, the sort of the father of modern computing. Um, he developed this test, which he considered more of a game than anything, uh, which is funny because the movie's called The Imitation Game, although they really never even approached the Turing test. It's all yeah. about... Oh, yeah. Oh, there's, there's yeah. a lot in the movie that... There's a lot that gets left out of the movie yeah. about um, his life. But basically, the whole idea of the Turing test is that if uh, if you are unable to... So if you're given sort of like... Um, uh, if you have like a conversation with two entities and one is a computer and one is a human being... Uh, you basically have you the, the the most basic idea is that you ask each questions and then you're supposed to be able to figure out which is a human and which is a computer and if you can't figure it out then um, you then then that computer has passed the Turing test and then right. it's functionally like could be an AI an artificial right. intelligence which, a conscious which, entity which becomes the in Blade Runner the Voight Kampf test the Voight Kampf test in Blade Runner and then uh, a, a movie that we've talked about recently on or not recently we've talked about on the podcast which is ex machina Uh which is a turing test where the sub the person who's giving the turing test knows that the subject is an artificial intelligence but is trying to find ways to sort of like prove that explicitly right um which is a weird way because it's like the turn the whole idea behind the turing test is that you're not supposed to know um, which is why that movie is kind of strange because it's almost like the movie is trying to figure out what's, what's beyond the Turing test. And I would say that what's beyond the Turing test is the uncanny Valley where, so when this comes to cinema to, without getting stuck in the uncanny Valley, uh, the, uh, in 2003, a movie came out called final fantasy, the spirits within. And it was the first, uh, mo- full length feature length movie, um, that was completely computer animated with photorealistic animation. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, if you can think back that far, uh, it was kind of a mind-blowing movie because it was it was uh, incredibly expensive. I think its budget was like $130 million. And it was the first movie by Square Studios, which uh, was the movie studio uh, assembled by Square Soft, at the time of Square Soft. Um, the video game company that right. put together all the Final Fantasies. And they basically just like built the whole studio full of, it was like a computer farm where they just had animators rendering stuff f- forever. Yeah. Um, and the really sort of sinister, weird thing behind this is that the director, who is the creator of the Final Fantasy games, he had this idea that he would create a, a main character for this movie 
and the main character of the movie is Dr. Dr. Aki Ross, um, who is a, I would think purposely vaguely, vaguely ethnic person who is sort of like not white, but is white, like has, is like attractive, but not like too fakely attractive, just like a very standard every person. And that that, that character would then become a malleable star of every movie that the studio would put out. So you could put out a, you could put out like, I want to, we want to make an action movie, uh, about two cops. And so then you're like, okay, well we'll take Dr. Aki Ross and we'll change her slightly so that she can be this cop. Right. And that they, they would basically like build an artificial movie star. Right. Um, the thing about final fantasy, beside the fact that it is a fucking boring movie, it's really, it makes no sense. It's, it's a really impressive movie, but it's so boring. It's really boring and stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Um, is that it's it's weird because you watch this movie and everything is so realistic looking, but it's so off-putting and so unnerving. And, and you it's hard to watch it. And you can't tell why exactly because you're like, it looks real, but it, it just makes me feel really uncomfortable. Did you Did you read the recent... New York Magazine piece about all the digital editing that happens now to movie stars' bodies and faces and all of these tiny little tweaks that get done that I didn't even know mm-hmm. were happening. But, yeah. I mean, you think of um, – they interviewed people from the company that worked on, like, Benjamin Button yeah. and Captain America mm-hmm. where he's, like, supposed to be this scrawny guy. Yeah. Um, but those – I mean, that's, a you know, an obvious special effect, right? right? But – what they're doing to almost every movie, it sounds like, is going in and essentially doing like plastic surgery to people's faces and making people skinnier and doing putting a different face on a different body and all these things that seem really next level and incredible. And if no one had told me they were happening, I wouldn't be aware because you go see things. And like to me, you see a movie with a lot of green screen effects. Yeah. Um, like a movie like, you know, the Thor movies uh-huh. or uh, this this Victor Frankenstein movie that came out uh-huh. that it's just so dour and so artificial looking. And it's just like everything has like this gleam to it. Mm-hmm. And I can't stand it because it does feel incredibly artificial. And it's like, man, just film on a set. Just make a set because yeah. it feels so much better. And... Uh, so I guess that's two things. The set as Uncanny Valley, right. which I notice a lot and yeah. I, I'm really bothered by often, yeah. but probably don't notice a lot of the time too because it is, mm-hmm. it's realistic enough. Well, I think the, like the, the most, uh, the, I think the, the most highly publicized idea of that is something that was almost like strangely realized during the Oscars is um, Matt Damon's digital beard in The Martian mm. where they... Uh, the Martian was nominated for uh, best visual effects, and when they're showing, when they were showing the nominees, uh, they showed a scene of Matt Damon in, on a green screen in his spacesuit, uh, and he's climbing this like you know fake Martian hill, and you see uh, all of the digital effects that they added to it, and you can see that this little little digital beard come out of nowhere and just get planted on his face, and you're like, <clears throat> excuse me, you're like is that because Matt Damon couldn't grow a beard or like, why did they do that? Right. 
And it's weird because you don't even notice it. And you don't. That's something that no one pays attention to anymore. Well, right. I mean, it's like auto-tune on a pop song where if it's not being used in a stylistic way, like a T-Pain or a Kanye West way, mm-hmm. and it's just, oh, no, we just fixed somebody's voice. Right. Or um, this concept called uh, quantizing, which is where you have a drum track, and instead of like the little microseconds between hits or whatever that the imperfections of the track it all just gets squeezed to to a strict grid and that's how a lot of stuff is made and you can tell because it sounds plasticky but sometimes you can't and that's what's really terrifying to me in a way is like the end of an actual human art art piece well see that's the thing is like that's that's so we're at this weird point where the uncanny valley is i think we're starting to come out of it because we're starting to not notice anymore right um but there was this really weird period between uh 2003 between final fantasy and now uh where i think the probably the the uh i think in my article i call him like our our main sin our, our main cartographer of the uncanny valley is robert zemeckis who made um the first movie he made is the polar express which was all uh, motion capture and then photorealistic um, animation on top of it, mm-hmm. which that movie is a f- super mind fuck. Like, I don't recommend recommend anybody watch that. It is not only is it really boring because it's basically a, a twenty page children's book turned into a right two hour movie. Of course. Um, and it's just like if you really think that, I mean, it's. Tom Hanks is in it, and I love Tom Hanks, but it's it's God, it's just like, dude, why did you do this movie? Why? Um, so Robert Zemeckis made this movie, and it, it's it's creepy because the children, like it's it's the uncanny valley at its at its creepiest because it's 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 more realistic than Final Fantasy, and therefore it's just fucking creepier. The children in this movie are disturbing; they're yeah. really disturbing to behold. What what makes it? disturbing to you this is it because to me when i see something like that i mean it's clearly cgi yeah you know it's not to the point where you would mistake it for actual photorealism right so i think that um so this is this is this is part of the the scientific studies that have been made on the uncanny valley where people are wondering why why does why why do why are we so off put by this and there's a few theories uh they're all based on um you think that there would be initially based on cognitive dissonance, which I think that that's kind of, I think that like cognitive dissonance is, is basically what it comes down to. There, there's a few things that you could say. It could be that, um, uh, there's, there's like a, there's a list. One is that, uh, it, it reminds us of our own mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, is that we see sort of the, in, in these synthetic characters, we see how, uh, we almost our brain like intuits the in, in intangible nature of our own realness, um, and so it's sort of like taking the taking the thin line between real and and unreal and like putting it in our face, and our brain's just like fuck that, no, right, like, no. Uh, one is that uh, it, um, uh, it, oh, it. Uh, it reflects negatively our our prime mode of survival which is procreation and multiplication 
and it basically like flaunts that in our face because it's like saying like computers can replicate uh human beings in ways that you can't right and so you're so you're almost you're less useful you're inconsequential almost. right right that's interesting uh well, one is that like it reflects like sickness um i think it basically it, what it all comes down to is that it it questions our existence right. in ways that our brain is unwilling to deal with huh and all this time i just i thought i liked hand-drawn animation better yeah. uh for nostalgic reasons well i think what, what i've what i've personally seen is i think if you look in the eyes of these characters the eyes don't work like normal eyes do um and i think that that's almost that's i think by now that that's kind of like been solved um I think that probably the best example of the fact that we might be climbing out of the uncanny, uncanny valley now is the Jungle Book, which I haven't seen. Yeah. But what I'm what I'm hearing is that it's it's not uncomfortably real. It's like it's surreal because all these animals are not they're like different sizes than real animals should and be. And they talk. And they talk. Yeah. Uh, and they also talk, yeah. Right. <laughs> but that like they're but they're realistic and they're they're um, acceptably realistic, huh. and 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 animals fall in the uncanny valley too. And I because I think that like a perfect example of of something that's f- way further back on the x axis is a stuffed animal, which it's all it also has to do with motion. The uncanny valley also has to do with motion. And so if you have something that's motionless, yeah, it's easier to accept than something that's moving. Right. And so also a lot of moving in these like Robert Zemeckis' movies, especially these little children running. It's like it's so fucking weird looking. Um, another movie that's coming out soon is the Warcraft movie, which is very, like, all the orcs are CGI orcs. Yeah. And so I think that'll be another test of the Uncanny Valley. So to bring that all back to Anomalisa, which is Robert Zemeckis made all these movies. Uh, he made Beowulf, and then he made A Christmas Carol. Uh, both of those movies are also fucking creepy as shit, and I don't, they're, ba- I, they're bad movies. They really are. Um, the technology got better, but there still is always the fact that we were in the uncanny Valley. We just like, it's just creepy to watch watching the, even watching a Christmas Carol, which came out in 2009, I think uh, you can see the individual pores on fake Jim Carrey's face, but that doesn't in any way make it any less creepy. Right. You know, um, I think what anomalies it does is really super interesting, which is that it takes this idea of, of synthetic realism and takes it to a weird extreme where it's holding up its synthetic nature in front of our eyes. But it's it's trying to be so meticulously realistic in the mundane that it almost is like climbing. I feel like it's climbing out of the uncanny valley because it's admitting how unrealistic it is. But it's being hyper-realistic in an acceptable way for us to deal with by by sort of like um catering to the most the most boring common denominator of what makes us human. Right. Well, and also just showing depicting sex and depicting yeah, and the, the character exactly. a, a doll in the shower and like having a puppet dick and all this stuff yeah. and having the most accurate possible representation of that on a puppet mm-hmm. on something that actually tangibly exists versus having like this weird because to me, like, what bothers me is not so much, I guess it's hard to say, but what, what I think bothers me uh, is when you have something that's computer-generated and clearly 
is this fake thing mm-hmm. as opposed to something that was, you know, a puppet that was moved or a, a practical effect or whatever it is, you know, a, a horror movie with a person in a suit, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And yeah. you see something that actually was filmed and it has a naturalism and a movement and the lighting and all those things because it actually exists. And you see these like these Robert Zemeckis movies or these things that have come out in the last 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. like in the early, I guess, you know, what we'll someday consider the first, the early generation of CGI effects. And they look like failures in a way because they have not achieved that pure photorealism mm-hmm. and they don't have the same movement and feeling and realness that a quote unquote inferior practical effect would give you it, it's almost like an idea of agency um which is that well and it becomes you watch it and it feels lazy it feels right. like a, a choice of convenience and budget versus you know making an extremely intricate stop-motion movie um and yet we have this movie we have um fantastic mr fox mm-hmm. Coraline. Mm-hmm. i mean all of those really feel like pieces of art to me in contrast to you know, some of these more uh, computer-generated things. And some of yeah. it's just a taste. That's just my, my taste. Right, But right. I do think there is an element of realistic movement versus this, like, fake version that is trying to get there and is, you know, like you said, starting to get there, um, but hasn't for a long time. Right, and I think that, like, you know, the difference between Anomalisa and and even uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox and the Robert Zemeckis movies or the Final Fantasy movie is that um, Robert Zemeckis and Final Fantasy are basically just like, and I think this is most in- illustrated by Final Fantasy, which is that Dr. Aki Ross, uh, the main character, she was the first fictional character that was in Maxim's top 100 sexiest women of the year. Wow. So is that a, is that a reader poll? Uh, they no, they, that was the editor put that in there. Yeah. Now I don't even, I, now the movie was such a commercial, the movie basically, destroyed the movie studio yeah square studios within it's because it it was so critically i think a lot of people were basically just like what what is this fucking movie you know but it was so expensive and it just never even remotely made its money back um i think the idea that final fantasy and robert zemeckis movies want you to just accept that they're that they're real i think the directors want you to to be fooled to basically say like this is as close as we're ever going to get to synthetic realism right well and one of the conclusions of this vulture piece or the new york magazine piece uh that i read on vulture.com was it enables the director to go back to a scene and if the actor didn't move his mouth in the right way to just fix it yeah and to redo the scene essentially in post, mm-hmm. which creates, you know, and you can also look at like the Tupac hologram mm-hmm. and bringing back dead actors for TV commercials yeah, and like yeah. taking the image and putting it to these essentially nefarious, uh, totally uncanny purposes. Yeah. You know, you have this zombie CGI actor running around. Right, right. Um, and it sets us up for a future where your your control of your own body of your own image uh is potentially no longer your own and so agency yeah exactly becomes in in 
Jet Total Jeopardy. Yeah, it's, I think it's. I think that that's what it gets down to is the Uncanny Valley is so scary, and we're so, and it's the Uncanny Valley for a reason, which is that we're lost in it. We don't know. We don't see the clearly defined boundaries between what's real and what's not, mm-hmm. and our gut reaction is to to be repulsed by that. The thing about Anomalisa is it basically says like, you know, this is not real. You can see that it's not real, but look how real this is, how real this feels, how human it is, how human it is. No. And I thought that was a very powerful choice. And I think like you can, you can always get more, or you can get as much emotion out of an animated piece of work or stop motion Mm -hmm. or, you know, the further you go, or even like thinking about genre, like sci-fi or, uh, the reason the Pixar movies are so good yeah. is because they put you in this cartoon world and then say something deeply profound about being a person. Yeah. And whether it's in Toy Story 3 or in Inside Out or whatever it is, the fact that you are not seeing real people and you're able to like suspend your kind of ordinary cynicism mm-hmm. and your ordinary everyday opinions about the world because you're in a fantasy land, that allows you to like dive more richly into your into deep emotions or vulnerability or Mm -hmm. or you know the human condition and so i think this movie was an attempt to do that to reflect humanity through the a clearly not real uh art form i just think it had a shitty script yeah that's that's fair enough um i do think it's I, i like that idea of of awareness of of realness because i think that you know we're actually we're i feel like our psyches are very fragile in general we're very we're very fragile organisms in that um if we don't know that we're being fooled i think that we we operate under the idea that we're not being fooled if we're unaware that we're being fooled, then we're like, okay, we must not be fooled. Might be being fooled. You're, you're not checking for it, right? But as soon as we know that we are, then our brain is just like, fuck this and fuck you, right. forever thinking that. And I think that a perfect example is, you know, um, uh, Microsoft put an AI on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it was unbelievable. Right, uh, and because we knew that this was an AI, that this was a synthetic entity, we did what we normally do on Twitter only to the 100th degree, which is we basically, as a human race, decided to uh, drive this AI into becoming a sex-crazed Nazi. <laughs> right. Because because we're like, well, I don't believe that, that uh, you know being a lascivious Trump supporting Nazi is a good thing, but I'm going to act that way because I think that I can, because it's not real. No, this is real. Right. It goes back to, I mean, that's another level too, because you, you go back with that. I think it goes back to, um, this sort of message board idea of doing something for the lulls, Mm -hmm. like doing something to have bragging rights about it on this message board where you're an anonymous actor in a fake digital space. And, with things like Twitter and and Facebook and so on, where this abuse has deep effects on people's lives, and it's something that is in the news headlines every day or whatever, it's no longer something that gets ignored as like, oh, it's just nerds on the internet doing whatever. Right. That divide between the realness of the internet 
and uh, how it spills over into real life, you know, has essentially been destroyed. Mm -hmm. And everyone can be hacked. Everyone can be tracked down. Like, there is no real anonymity on the internet anymore. Mm -hmm. So this, this world of internet behavior of like sort of artificiality that existed for a long time uh just doesn't anymore and it's really changing to go after this ai though is sort of a safe space then in mm-hmm. that new reality because if you go after somebody real well shit they can find you and get you fired you know but you go after this uh artificial intelligence and there are no consequences so that's sort of that was that thinking of it that way is like a sort of weird in a way it's like the weird postscript to message board culture because I don't think that stuff is going to be able to endure. Yeah. It's, it is strange because it makes you uh, all this idea of about trying to find the line between reality and surreality or reality and, and, and uh, synthetic reality or, or anything. It's, I mean, it's all, it all it all comes back to directly to our perspective on 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 the world which is that i think maybe we're all just trying to avoid the idea that you know it's what descartes was talking about that maybe we're only that reality is only what we perceive you know that that this podcast that this microphone that i'm holding that you that you this conversation that all of this is just in my head and that, you know, the mate, the fucking matrix, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, that maybe the twist ending to this conversation is the like actively discussed scientific theory that we're living in a simulation mm-hmm. and reality is in fact pixelated. And there is a fair amount of evidence that suggests that we are all living in some, we're just a hologram. We're, we're a, hologram a hologram and some, some very advanced civilizations, uh, computer. Yeah. I, I don't believe that, but is it, it's not an impossible thing. No, it I, doesn't change anything for us here down in hologram land. I don't believe that because I think that I would go insane if I didn't believe it. Now, I think that that's I'm I feel like I'm preserving my brain uh-huh. by not believing it. Well, I just feel like the act of feeling, it seems like it would be pretty nuts for a computer to generate artificial intelligence for all of us in which we would have all these human sensations and awareness and you know, that sense of tangible whatever. I mean, I guess it is all just yeah. electrical signals in the brain. Yeah. It could be done in 10,000 years. Who knows? Uh-huh. Yeah. But that sensibility makes me feel like, no, I'm a person. <laughs> I mean, you know, ultimately it doesn't matter. Uh, and That's I don't... kind of the thing is it doesn't matter. It doesn't. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I guess I'm fairly existential in my, in my personal belief system. And I don't really think I have to believe anything or have a really a, you know, I'm Jewish, but I don't really feel like I have a, have to have any sort of faith-based awareness of the world. Mm. Uh, I, I am here and that's what you get, you know? Um, so I don't, I don't think it's possible to know the answers and I don't, don't think we as humans know them. Mm-hmm. And I'm much more comfortable assuming that I have no idea what's going on yeah. and I should just go about my day mm. versus thinking, well, here's this very complex uh, version of what happens after you die and you know here's how the way the world really is and because we you know we just don't know and we have to kind of go find out yeah yeah it's uh i think that a lot of it comes down to self-preservation you know yeah. how, how how what do you have to tell yourself or what do you have to believe in order to get to the next day to to keep going to forget about thinking about existence constantly and just think about other things 
and, and move on to the next thing. And maybe that's kind of, maybe that's, that's why the uncanny Valley is so hard for us to deal with that are, that, that it's a, it's a thought experiment that makes us react physically. Um, cause I can tell you like watching, cause in writing the article, I, I watched all these movies Yeah, and there are a lot of times I was like, this is, this is a disturbing movie to watch. The The Polar Express is a fucking disturbing movie. There are times when you're watching it and you're like, how could this director watch this movie and think that this is okay to view by a human being? Right. Where you look at these children and they look like grotesqueries and you're like, that. this is disturbing. How can any human being watch this movie and think that these are okay looking people? Right. It's so fucking weird. You know what really bothers me is when a movie is all blue and orange mm-hmm. and you're like you're looking at a scene and like the entire sky is, you know, this like ridiculous shade of yeah. of blue and the whole it's all super saturated and it's like that's not what that looks like. <laughs> and it really bothers me that someone went in and you know turned a knob or you know pushed the pulled a, a slider and whatever program yeah. and made that happen as opposed to you i understand you have to color correct well i'm a photographer i you know i get that but you know you can also color correct to an extremely uh accurate version of what you know mm-hmm. it looks like to go outside or to oh, be yeah. in a room or whatever and it just bothers the hell out of me to see that as this like <laughs> stylistic choice because it's like someone decided that this was an aesthetically good idea and it's not. It just looks stupid. It drives me crazy. Well, that's that's isn't that uh, expediency is for and like it's because it's easy. Like it's right. an easy it's, color correction. Yeah, it's an easy exactly. It's an yeah. easy color correction and it feels familiar because there are so many films that look like that now. Mm-hmm. And somebody decided that blue and orange go well together yeah. and they flatter skin tones. And then you don't have to like go through every, you know, shot of this movie fixing the white balance. Mm-hmm. But you know, I would say it's probably not that hard. You could just do it. There's plenty of shows on TV that look fine. Yeah. That don't look like that. Yeah. Uh, well, that probably, so, um, us, that probably brings us to the end of this rabbit hole. Yeah. What is, what is reality? If you think you know what reality is, you can find us on Twitter and let yeah, us know. Yeah, let us know. Or you can... On the uh, very realistic landscape of Twitter. <laughs> right. The uncanny hashtags. Uh, we're at PLGM Podcast. You can also email us. What did we say the email was? Pretty little grown men. Is that it? Pretty little... Is it PLGM Podcast? No, I think it's I think it's spelled out. Oh, we don't know what our email. We said is. it on the last podcast. <laughs> you probably, you probably have it. I'll, I'll memorize it again for the next one. Uh, but yeah, talk to us on Twitter. Uh, we have a fake beer sponsor. Yeah, we do. We uh, do. This week's fake fake beer sponsor is uh, a fake sponsor we've had before. Um, it is the Pelican Brewing Company out of the Oregon coast, which I don't remember where exactly it's from. It's from the Oregon Coast. Oh, that's from Tillamook. Oh, hey. Cool. Yeah. Pelican Brewing Company out of Tillamook, Oregon, which also has the Tillamook Cheese Company, which makes excellent cheese. Yes, delicious. Uh, If you would like to be a real beer sponsor or a real anything sponsor, I'd be interested in kombucha, uh, Mm -hmm. non-alcoholic beverages as well. Uh, You should let us know, and we can work that out. Yeah. Uh, This this the beer that I'm drinking this week uh, to give some uh, some 
some weight to our fake sponsorship is uh, the Dirty Bird IPA from Pelican. Uh, I very much like Pelican. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm the biggest fan of this IPA. Their single hop I, I'm pretty stoked on a lot of the time. This one is it's a little bit sweeter than I would like. Um, but it's still good beer, and I will drink all six of those beers eventually <laughs> nice. in, in that pack. Uh, so thank you, Pelican, for fake uh, sponsoring this episode. Um, are you a, a real beer? I don't know. If you sponsor us, you will definitely be a real beer. <laughs> uh, you can, of course, drop some star ratings on us on iTunes. Always appreciate that. And I guess maybe we'll talk about Game of Thrones next time. Uh, probably. And well, then Pretty Little Liars is starting pretty soon. It is. It's coming back in June. Uh, not super far away. Uh, I'm definitely going to want to talk about the Captain America and Apocalypse movies in May. Oh, yeah. So that'll be exciting. Right. I am extremely excited to see both of them. Mm-hmm. They, the people, a bunch of people went in, a bunch of the first round of critics saw Captain America. Everyone gushed. Yeah, it's gotten some really good pre, so, pre-reviews. I mean, contrast that with Superman, Batman, where they wouldn't even let people see it. Like, or they wouldn't let people run any, say anything, mm-hmm. like until the week of or until the day of or whatever, you know, uh, it had an embargo as so, opposed to this movie where it's like they were, they know it's great and they're trying to get the word out. So I will say, uh, I know that we spent, we, we definitely, we had the longest podcast of our career last episode when we talked about BVS. Um, but what I discovered is that dream sequence that we thought was a, a overly actioned dream sequence. Yeah. I think that was actually like, that was an actual future yeah. Like it was an actual yeah. Like it was supposed to be like an alternate future for when dark like dark side. Dark side. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. It wasn't actually a dream. It was, yeah. it, was it was an actual future. Yeah. P- potential future. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it doesn't change the fact that it's just like shoved into the movie in the worst shoving of any scene in any movie ever. No. No. The best scene in the movie in in my opinion. That doesn't <laughs> feel totally well, it apart from you know. The movie. It would have been better if they discover, you know, not to like say I'm a script doctor, but wouldn't it make more sense if they reveal that the Flash exists? You know, reveal, do the Wonder Woman thing, reveal that other superpowered beings are out there, and do the do the YouTube sequence a little yeah. earlier in the movie, and then have the Flash crackle into the tube. You're right. And, that's that's and, a really fucking stupid structuring of the movie. You're right. You're right. They should they should introduce the at least the the vague possibility of the Flash character and then have him show up later. Right. So it feels like a payoff as opposed to what the fuck was that? And then you find out what it was sort of on YouTube. Well, that's that just reveals how piss poor they used Wonder Woman because they had so they had to introduce the the, the future vision that Batman has has to introduce or has to up the ante of his hate towards Superman. But Wonder Woman is introduced so late that the revelation that she, that there are these other like superhumans out there has to come later in her development. So it just shows that they just like fucked up the structure slashed totally misused Wonder Woman. They never even really introduce her. She's just kind of in the movie. Yeah. It's a bad movie. Diana Prince. It is a bad movie. But maybe her movie will be good. I've I I I think her movie will be good. I hope so. And it's got to give it to the DC Universe, at least it's directed by a woman. Yeah. 
you know which is exciting yeah i'm i'm stoked on uh marvel having uh ryan coogler writing and directing the black panther movie yeah that should be awesome um apparently the the black panther series is just fucking awesome uh written by Tanahisi Coates. Yeah. Coates. However you pronounce his name. Coates. Coates. Um that's supposed to be an awesome new series. I'm I'm stoked to read it. I heard it was like doing incredible sales traffic, which is which is great to hear. Yeah, good, good. Um so we'll see. Uh that's all to come. Soon. Uh until next time, we're uh, a hologram uh, bitches. Get real bitches. <laughs> What's a keeping? I know what's a keeping. I know what's a keeping.